reading from John 6, and we're going to take a load of verses from John 6, uh, but I want to start with one verse, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you are both the sustainer of this physical life, but you are also the giver of eternal life. And Lord, today we thank you that you are gracious with that gift of eternal life. Lord, every one of us here today, none of us deserved it, none of us has earned it, and yet you have given us that gift that today we can know that we walk in your eternal life, that when we die, we do not die for eternity, but we merely step into the very presence of the living God. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to live out of that truth day by day, moment by moment, in a way that would give you great glory. In Jesus' name. <clears throat> Amen. Well, um, as you can tell from the verse, we're going to be reading and looking at today John chapter 6. There's a whole lot of verses in there, 71 verses. We don't have time to read through all of those, but there are some key narrative points that I want to touch down as we explore. There's the feeding of the 5,000, there's the teaching that comes afterwards, but I first wanted to look at the title, uh, Don't Trip Over Bread. Some people have been asking me about, it's actually one of the most questioned titles ever. Amen. <clears throat> what do I mean by don't trip over bread? Trip can have a few different meanings. I can think of at least three for the purposes of today. A trip can be going on a, a holiday or a purposeful journey somewhere <clears throat> where you enjoy yourself and enjoy uh, different contexts and opportunities that you might have. There's a second kind of a, a trip to stumble or to lose your balance in such a way that you will probably fall. I don't know if this happens to you in London, but I live in one of those spaces where there's kids on scooters, and I don't mean the ones that ride up beside you and rob you, I mean those little scooters where they're you know, running along on their feet. Have you seen any, any of those? Now, some of those kids are crazy dangerous. You see them come flying by you, they're jumping over little things, and then they get to the road and you don't see them slow down until maybe right at the edge. Some of them just fly straight over. Luke, my son, is learning how to scoot, and he is not like those guys. He's like the daydreamer scooter. And he's talking away to himself while he's scooting, and sometimes he might go through soft stuff, leaves or whatever, and sometimes you know, there's a bit of unevenness in the pavement. And because he's daydreaming and going so slowly and talking to himself, he might hit that ledge and stumble and fall flat on his face. Now, the problem is that sometimes I see those ledges and sometimes I tell him, sometimes I don't. And he hits them and he goes flying. It's bad parenting, I know. That's a trip. Third kind of a trip is <clears throat> a trip of the psychedelic variety. Um, I'm only telling you this story because I'm sure you can imagine it um, actually happening. Uh, last Wednesday, I was sitting, sitting in the lower hall. Our cell runs from 8 o'clock. Sitting in the lower hall at 10 past 8, I pick up the phone to one of the boys and I say, Mate, where are you at? What are you doing? We're having cell. Aren't you taking the things of God seriously? And he sat on the other end of the phone and just went, I, I was practicing. I was practicing kissing my teeth. I couldn't do it in the moment when I needed to. But he just kissed his teeth and said, bruh, you're tripping. Why? Because we all know what was happening on Wednesday. Semi-final World Cup day. 
Uh, he was thinking to me, why are you calling me about being at cell on a day when all of us are out in the pub watching the game? And to be truthful, that's where we were. Uh, Jay, you here today? No, no, he's probably down the pub watching the final. <clears throat> so there's three kinds of trips. The journey, the stumble, and this kind of a trip, the story or the illusion that we think other people need to follow. It's a story that we go around telling people and we think it has to be universally applied. And from their perspective, they think you're crazy. And they ask the question, why are you tripping? You all look so serious today. No, none of you ever heard that phrase, why are you tripping? Okay, all right. I'll go preach somewhere else today. <laughs> um, and so we're going to look a little bit at a, at, at a trip, a journey that Jesus is on. And uh, while Jesus is on this trip, there are some people who come along with bad assumptions. And Jesus is thinking about them, why are you tripping? There's the difficult journey that some of them make because in the end it becomes a wasted journey. The teaching that Jesus gives them, they can't live with, they can't handle, and so they turn away. It's like my friend who flew all the way from Hong Kong to Russia to be part of that semi-final game. He tripped and fell headlong. It wasn't worth going all the way for that game. But then there are others who go on this difficult journey that becomes the most important and worthwhile journey that they ever make because they find purpose and relationship to carry them forward in who God is calling them to be. <clears throat> and I want to say to you today, if you don't ask yourself some difficult questions and challenge your bad assumptions, you could find yourself tripping over bread. Now, John 6, that's the passage we're going to be looking at today and exploring a little bit today. I don't have time to go through all of them, but let me set a context. Verse 1 through 15 is a story we all know well. Uh, it has important foundational aspect for the whole of the message. It begins with 5,000 men who are starving, plus women and children who are following Jesus. And they are about to see something incredible. Maybe they've spent a whole day walking, maybe they spent a few days walking to follow this man, Jesus. But they made a huge tactical error. They didn't bring no Tupperware. They bring, didn't bring their lunch. And Peter's too busy living by faith to have budgeted for this feast that Jesus is in the middle of planning. Peter's not ready for what Jesus is about to put on show until this miracle happens. A little boy shows up. He's got his five loaves and two fish. And suddenly this food is multiplied to feed 5,000. But I was just thinking about this a bit. Did 5,000 people really just forget to bring food? Or was the reality of their context that they probably went from day to day maybe or maybe not eating food, not guaranteed three square meals a day, but looking for different opportunities to be fed. Then after the feeding, Jesus sends the disciples ahead and he follows himself afterwards. And we see this walking on water story, verse 12 through 21. And what's amazing about that is that how, that's how Jesus, our Lord, uh, rolls. He walks on water. Um, and if he can walk on water, then be grateful, but don't be satisfied when he just gives you a piece of bread. Always desire more from the Lord. And then after these two important um, preludes to the teaching, we find the teaching itself that relates to Jesus being the bread of life. In that verse I just read to you, he said, I am the bread of life. Now this is how John structures his gospel. There are seven I am statements within his overall teaching. And what he does is have a miracle, 
and then teaching to follow so that the miracle or the sign makes sense in the context of understanding Jesus. And so here we have one of these seven I am statements. Now these I am statements are significant because they look back to Moses and his experience of the burning bush. In Exodus 3 verse 13, Moses says to God when he's talking to this burning bush, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said to him, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And what that really means is God saying, I am everything. I am what you need me to be. I am savior, redeemer, healer, provider, liberator, comforter, king, lord. And I'll walk in water on my spare time so that you guys don't have to wait for me. And in that context, he says, I am the bread of life. And the moment you sit down and start to think about this, bread is a basic sustenance. It's like rice for the Chinese. Bread is a basic sustenance. It's what keeps us alive. But Jesus doesn't say, I am the bread to keep you physically alive. He says, I am the very bread of life. That means he's claiming through this statement to be the one that upholds all life, that gives sustenance to all of us every single day, who nurtures us, strengthens us, provides for us, gives us this great gift of life. And in the context of this, I am the bread of life teaching, he effectively challenges three key areas which I want to look at for us today. Jesus is full of grace and truth, and he wants to invite us by his grace, to walk in the truth, not half-truths. And so there's three questions I want to look at with us today. It's a sermon of threes. Question one, are you easily satisfied? Question two, are you easily distracted? Question three, are you easily offended? If your answer is yes to one, two, or three of those, and you decide to continue in being easily distracted, easily satisfied, or easily offended, I can guarantee you are on a trip to nowhere in relation to where God wants you to be. Jesus wants us to assess clearly where we are in relation to each one of these until the revelation sinks in, until we live from the reality of heaven here on earth. And the reality is that Jesus sees us exactly as we are. We might put on nice pictures and illustrations and images for people around us, uh, pretending to be something that we're not, but Jesus sees us exactly for who we are. And he's calling us to reflect on where we're at using the minds that he's given us and asking us ourselves difficult questions so that we can live a life of purpose. And I would go so far as to say this, if we don't ask ourselves these questions earnestly, two things will happen. One is, at a point, we'll, cut, we'll fall away from faith. And at a second point, we'll find ourselves walking a path that leads towards depression, anxiety, stress, because we're not going where we are supposed to be and where we know deep down God has made us on this earth to be going. And yet Jesus' lessons in each context are relational. His lessons for us are to draw near to him and to know him in a deeper way. Um, but if we continue away from him, we undermine or walk away from those relationships. And it's through relationship with God and with others that we will be redeemed. So, uh, three questions. Question one, are you easily satisfied? John 6, 25 to 27. 
When they found Jesus on the other side of the sea, remember he'd walked on water, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Teaching point here for us. Do you celebrate or even embrace something for the right or the wrong reasons? These people are now finding Jesus on the other side of the sea and they're saying, teacher, how did you come here? As though they had come to get more teaching. And Jesus says, listen, stop playing games. Stop tripping. Stop pretending. I know you're not here because you want some good teaching. I know you're here because I fed you yesterday and you're hoping to get fed today. The reality of their life is probably that they didn't have guaranteed food on a daily basis, and especially now in the desert, but here they are to meet with Jesus, and he's saying, listen, you're here, but let's really identify why you're here. You're here because you got something from me. You were easily satisfied with physical things. And there's a challenge here through what he's saying that we need to understand that there is physical satisfaction and then there is eternal or spiritual satisfaction. So with each of these three questions, I'm gonna challenge three areas of life for us, for us to think about how we are operating in these particular areas. In this one, we could just talk about food. We could think about Esau's example, how because he was hungry, because he was desperate for food, he sold his birthright, and then he gave up his blessing uh, to his brother and lost out on all that God had prepared for him. I don't know if you've ever been that hungry. Have you ever been that hungry that you would willingly give away your birthright? I've been that hungry that I can't talk to people, but I've not been that hungry that I would give away my birthright. But this is one example of something where we can treat it lightly. But I wanted to look at the area of sex. We've heard a little bit about this recently in the church, and RT was preaching on it, Colin was preaching on it, so I thought I'd jump on the bandwagon. Now, the reality is this, and the reason I wanted to talk about it briefly is because we've got, to, we've got to redeem the way we see sex in the context of kingdom. In the worldly view, sex is all about self-satisfaction. It's the message is, sex is good, have as much as you can, whenever you can. Now, for some of you, this is a problem. For some of you, it's not. For some of you, you wish it were a problem. But the reality is that we all agree that sex is pleasurable. That's why, for many people, it's God. But the problem with sex is the way that the world would sell it, is that it can be done with anybody at any time for any reason. All you need to do is swipe left instead of right, and then maybe you might be looking to find somebody. But that sex is about temporary fulfillment, because it's all about self-satisfaction. And even if for the moment it's satisfactory, there is another moment where you need more and you need more and you need more. And sometimes it's punctuated with feelings of guilt, feelings of disconnection, feelings of worthlessness, feelings that you've just put your whole life on the line in order for to have some sexual satisfaction. It feels cheap. Now the issue is that it is good, but it is not for use in any context in, with any person at any time. All of that is classified as sin. 
the kingdom perspective on sex is this, that sex is a gift from God. But within the, within the godly construct, it's in the context of marriage, a covenant between a man and a woman from the biblical perspective. And sex is all about, in that context, satisfying the other. So you get all the benefits of sexual expression with the additional fulfillment of knowing that you are satisfying your loved one over an extended period of time. You're building a relationship that is intimate and satisfying and joy-filled in the long term. No guilt, no disconnection, no sense of worthlessness, only gift-centered, God-glorifying love and fulfillment, or at least that's the goal if you're struggling in that area. But these two are very different images. Sex is good, but to be a blessing to one other person. Sex is good, but leading to your own detriment. Jesus is saying, through the question that he's asking about food, are you easily satisfied? Do you just go for the quick win? Or do you go for that which is extended, lifelong, God-glorifying? This is why we need to fight for sexual purity, both before marriage and within marriage. Before, because every sexual encounter you have affects your marriage, whether you wish it did or not. And within, because any sexual encounter you have within your marriage other than with your partner is certainly going to get you killed one way or another. Okay? But he's saying, we've got to figure this out. Don't keep running after stuff that is temporary. Run after stuff that is enduring and of great value. Or rather, reflect on the real value of what God gives you. Back to the text, worldly satisfaction from eating bread. Jesus calls it what it is. You're only here because you were satisfied physically. Now, today, we might not have the same challenges of needing to wait a couple of days for food, but maybe we might be here because we want God to meet certain other physical needs immediately. Maybe you might be in church to meet the one. Maybe you might be in church because you need a miracle. Maybe you might be in church because you want to take a step up in your career and last time you prayed about it, it happened. So you're here because you want another prayer for it so that you can take that step. And Jesus' challenge is, you need to sit down and recognize that that is not a good enough reason to be following Jesus. To go moment to moment and physical need or emotional need met moment to moment as being the only way that you relate to him. He's saying, I've got eternal substance available for you, don't cheapen it by only taking the superficial physical things. He's inviting us to renew our mind. He's willing to give us this bread. He says, I will give you this bread of eternal life. If we were to sit down and ask ourselves the question, what does God want me to value about my relationship with him? Please, you hear what I'm saying when I say this. If you just come to church because it's Sunday, stop doing that. I don't mean stop coming to church. I mean evaluate your reasons for being here. If you're just coming to church because you want to do a good thing to balance out all the bad stuff you've done in the week, please stop doing that. If you're coming to church because God is the sugar daddy and you need to get something fixed, please stop doing that. Because none of it is about what we have on offer. God is offering us eternal relationship with him. Are you easily satisfied? It's time to transition, to be satisfied with things of lasting value. 
Question two, are you easily distracted? As Jesus is teaching and sharing some more about this idea of being the bread of life, uh, people are asking more and more questions. They're getting a bit confused by what he's saying and they're like, well, you know, where does this bread come from? And what are you on about? Why are you talking about being bread? You're a human being, we just don't get it. Are you tripping? And in the end, they come to a place where they say, you know, Jesus, you've got a problem. They're grumbling in themselves. How can you say I am the bread of life that's come down from heaven? They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I have come down from heaven? They're unhappy. They're saying Jesus is uh, somebody they know. But look at what Jesus had just said to them in just a, a moment before that. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. Jesus is saying, I want to give you eternal life. And they're saying, who's this Jesus? We know this Jesus. We know his parents. What's he on about? I want to give you eternal life. We know your parents. They were totally distracted away from the gift that God was offering them to this little detail that they had a problem with. Of course, for Jesus to be a man, he had to be born. And for him to be born, he had to have parents, at least one. And so there's this, that's self-evident. But the issue is, he's trying to show them something of the divine. Now, we can get distracted so often. Different contexts lead us to be distracted in different ways. Probably even now, your mind is somewhere else thinking about something else because I've said something and maybe it's caused your mind to go off in a particular direction. But I want to look at a another key focus area. We looked at the idea of sex. The second idea area to look at is the idea of work. To do what God has intended for you to do with your life. Let me just be straight with you. You need to be determined to study, to work, and to cultivate the relationships that God puts around you to produce with your life what God intends for you to produce. You are particularly gifted in a certain direction. And God wants to use that gift to bring something into the earth that isn't presently here. Whether it's your artistic flair, your creative skill, your thinking about science and so on, whatever it might be, you are gifted to add, to be a blessing, to produce. But we can get distracted from that purpose. I'm right now reading for my master's and it's dissertation season. Um, so I'm in the library a couple of nights a week, working till 1 a.m. because that's uh, the latest it's open at the moment, to study and read because I want to finish my dissertation. This thing is becoming a bondage now. So I want to get it out of my life. But the only way is to finish it and move on, right? But my phone was becoming a distraction. Do you know when you put your phone on the desk and it's still talking to you even though no one is talking. You know, like you feel like it buzzed even though it's not buzzed, the ghost buzzing thing. Um, and it was there, and I'm like reading half a page, phone, reading half a page, did Rebecca text, kids okay? Reading half a page, wonder what the score was, reading half a page, totally distracted. So I had to get an app that locks me out of my own phone uh, on particular times, and then I had to take that phone and put it in my bag um, just so that I wouldn't be distracted. This happens to us many different ways, not just with a phone. You might start out working and then suddenly you're like, oh, I need to buy batteries or shampoo or whatever. 
So then you start making a new to-do list or you think about someone that you were supposed to text or someone you were supposed to call. And this is the reality. WhatsApp won't meet your deadline. Watching YouTube won't make your movie. Reading Reddit won't write your book. Watching Prime won't pay for your future. And this is the issue that we all face. We get distracted by things all around us. And the challenge of our life increasingly is that we are getting sucked into 10-second interactions. How long does it take to scroll through your newsfeed? How long does it take to watch a video, see if you're interested? 10 seconds. We are constantly teaching our brains not to focus for more than 10 seconds. We're exchanging the purpose of our lives what God has put us on the earth to do for 110 second interactions that mean nothing to us in terms of our life. And don't think that your, emotion, uh, your devotional life is immune. Sit down to pray, suddenly you need the sleep that you have been skipping on the whole time you've been doing other stuff. Suddenly you've got a friend who's calling you with a panic emergency. And when you sit down to read, just like you're going to read John 6 later, right? All 71 verses where we sit down to read and we get distracted. And not only do we get distracted, we have trained our brains to not engage for more than 10 seconds. How many verses do you think you can read in 10 seconds? One? Two? How's the Word of God going to change your life when you're not dealing and ingesting it in your life? It takes less and less to distract us these days. Soon we're going to be Dory from Finding Nemo, and I've been watching all these, these kid movies at the moment, so that's fresh in my mind. That's my illustration. But God is calling us to be a people of deep focus. Unless we start to focus on what we are here for and start to execute against our purpose, we're not going to make any difference in the world around us. We need to train our minds to be deeply focused on what God is calling us to do. If you want to read more, there's a great book called Deep Work by Cal Newport, really challenging stuff in there. But technology needs to be moved out of being our bosses because when you're spending all of your time looking at the screen, it's driving how you use your time. Tech is supposed to be a tool, not a master. It's supposed to have a place where you use it when you need to use it, but then you set it aside and stop it distracting you. you need to, we need to cultivate deep habits of reflecting, reflecting on life, reflecting on scripture. Asking ourselves these questions, am I too easily satisfied? Am I too easily distracted? Do I need to start training myself to more deeply focus? You know, one of the great ways of training yourself is coming to sit in a sermon because we talk for a long time, right? 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, some of us 50 minutes. No, not you, Scott. Other people on holiday then. But unless we learn to cultivate focus. We're going to get distracted off the trip that we are supposed to be taking, the place that we are supposed to be going. And the challenge is that when we take our focus off where we're supposed to be going, when we know our purpose, the consequences of tripping are big. Maybe you need to spend more time focusing on theology. If you're still struggling with the big questions of why is there evil in the world? Or how do I understand the Trinity? Or how do I understand if I'm genuinely saved and saved for eternity? If you're still struggling with those things, well, we need to focus time on learning because there's great answers out there. Distraction can cause you to miss out on your true purpose. 
Question number three, are you easily offended? This is the third challenge that Jesus brings through this series of teaching. Uh, chapter 6, verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Gross. Sounds disgusting. Is he inviting us to become cannibals? Is he really asking us to eat of his flesh and drink his blood? It's disgusting. And that's what the disciples saw. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? <laughs> Not even who can apply it, but who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? And in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. I think we all recognize that in some areas, we can be really easily satisfied. In other areas, we can be really easily distracted. And in a whole host of areas, we can be easily offended. I don't like how you looked at me. I don't like how you said that. The tone, the facial features, the intent of what you had to say. I don't like any of those things. And yet Jesus here is being perfectly explicit about the ramifications of following him. This is where we get communion from. Because what he's saying is, for you to have full part in me, you have to recognize that death is necessary. Jesus had to go to the cross for you and for me. And this is perhaps the most offensive thing that we'll hear in the world today. If you go up to somebody and say, I'm a Christian, they immediately start thinking, well, I'm a good person. And who are you to judge me? And how dare you? And I'm free and I'm free to practice my rights and I'm free to express myself and I'm free to tell you how you refer to me. And all of these kinds of statements. Offense, right there. And yet Jesus says, and Jesus lived, he's got to die for you and for me. There is no other way to walk on this journey, to complete this trip, to go to the place that God intends for us to go to without coming again and again and again to the foot of the cross and recognize that it took Jesus dying to give you the privilege of the life that you have today. He's saying, unless you come to that place where you recognize that all that you have cost me my life, you've got no business being my disciple. Go back to being easily satisfied. Go back to being easily distracted. Go back to being easily offended. I'm not going to make you stay because if you don't see the true value of this sacrifice, you don't belong on this path. 
And this is where we come back to the issue of tripping over bread, the bread of the communion, the bread of the body of Christ. This is a stumbling block. Paul says it in another place in 1 Corinthians that the cross is a stumbling block. It's a place where people get to and they say, I can't go any further because I can't accept that you had to die on the cross for me. I can't accept that you had to give your life for me. If you think about it, the Christian claim that we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus is quite an unusual claim. Luke on his scooting expedition yesterday was down by the River Thames and I don't know what was going on. If I'd been with him, I'd have said, look away, turn away. But he got obsessed with this puddle of mud, starts riding towards this puddle of mud, fell over in this puddle of mud, all covered all up his face and everything. Beautiful river, Thames mud. Disgusting, you know. And what do we do? Take him home, we clean him up, get him in the shower, wash all of that off him. Yet Christians claim we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. That means that we are eternally marked by blood. Dried. Marked on you. Saying to everybody else, I am a son of the living God. It's a stigma. You would wash it off if you could see it. We would all try to. But this is the reality of the Christian expression, that we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And Jesus is teaching through this point that truth will offend your flesh. Truth will offend you outside of God. And the area that it offends the most in us today is our entitlement. Everyone in the Western world, regardless of whether you come from poverty or come from riches, has this sense of entitlement. Sometimes the poorest people I've come across have the biggest sense of entitlement. We are not immune on the basis of riches. It's on the basis of heart attitude. It's a sickness that we carry around every single day. We assume that we deserve everything. It's a pride. Everybody must love me. Everybody must have mercy on me. Everyone must want to bless me. God must want to bless me. I'm a good person. If someone challenges you, you're defending yourself. You get, how dare you speak to me like that? Do you know who I am? All of these sorts of frustrations and sometimes the way that people walk into situations. I had a disagreement with someone outside last week. He'd come from the hostel to dump his rubbish in the church bins. Now, you'd think it's no problem. But why don't they just dump rubbish at their own bins? Because they don't want to pay for it. We pay for our bins to be taken away. They don't want to pay for bins. So they come and use our bins. Okay, so you just come and use our bins. Okay, no big problem, but it is a problem. Because if you assume that you can just do it because the church has to pay, that's entitlement. Oh, the church is supposed to be there to help me. That's entitlement. And so we live in a place, a world that is consumed with entitlement. We assume we can do whatever we want to do, whenever we want to do, with no impact to anybody else. And if I'm not hurting anybody and so on, the reality is that our pride is on show everywhere when we walk out of entitlement. And Jesus' ultimate truth for us in this journey of bread is to say, you know what, if you can't come to the humility of accepting that I had to die for you, you have no lasting business walking with me. You have no lasting business walking with me. What's the key transition here? Recognizing that every one of us has everything that we have by the grace of God. That's the reality of life. That's what it costs. 
let's not assume that it's, oh, because I worked hard or because my parents or because this person was good to me. No, it's the grace of God. Job learned that lesson and he learned it hard and he learned it well. We're all called to walk with an attitude of gratitude and to say, you know what, because God calls me to love, I'm not going to prejudice you. I'm going to try and love you. And it might not look like perfect love. It, it might not look like God's love. It might not love be love as you think it should be, but I'm trying. I'm trying to show the love of God. That's the lesson that Jesus calls us to learn, that we don't have anything of ourselves except that which we live through the grace of God. And if he's given us anything, he's given us the privilege of love, loving him, then loving the people around us. So three questions, three transitions, three conclusions. Jesus goes through this teaching and finally he turns to his disciples who stay. Verse 67, so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Are you easily satisfied? Satisfaction is found only in following Christ Jesus, lasting satisfaction. Are you easily distracted? Well, we're called to focus our attention on his priorities for our life. Are we easily offended? The truth is offensive, but so is our sin to the holy and living God. And the only place where our sin gets reconciled with God is at the cross where he forgives our sin and washes it away by the blood of Christ. And we're called then to live a lifestyle which glorifies him, a lifestyle of righteousness, a lifestyle of honor. I come back to that discipline I shared with us at the beginning, the idea of reflecting. I believe that it's so important for everyone to reflect not just on those three questions, but the way those three questions point us to the gospel message. To dwell on until we love on the gospel. To consider what Jesus did for us in such depth that we literally love that truth above every other truth. We can practice this in communion. You know, we do communion here once a month, but you can be taking communion regularly in a cell context, in twos and threes, even on your own where you remember what Jesus did on the cross for you. But this is so important. Let me tell you why. Uh, we believe that God is pouring out his spirit in increasing measure, right? And there, there is a hope of new revival outbreaking in London. But the Bible's also clear. In those end days, the hearts of many will grow cold and they will run away after many different teachers. But for you, what is our privilege? Our privilege is to walk in the intention of God or the purposes of God by loving the core of the message, loving the gospel. And for us to not fall away and not get distracted and not be easily satisfied, the only way to do that is not to be more severe about our faith or more earnest about our faith, but to love and embrace the gospel. That's the only way. And actually, we were in prayer just before the Pentecost conference. And 
I was in dialogue with the Lord about this. What is the biggest thing that grieves your heart, Lord? My people don't love the gospel. I immediately sat back and I started to ask, where am I cultivating a deep love for the gospel? Am I going about my daily practice, day after day, just the same routine, or am I making space to dwell on, to reflect on, to thank God, to be humbled by, to be satisfied by, to be forgiven at, to be cleansed at the cross of Jesus Christ? If you don't eat my flesh, drink my blood, you have no part in me. For us to be the on-fire Christians that God intends for us to be, we have to dwell at the place of the cross because it's there that the exchange has happened. The exchange of death for life, of sin for holiness, of brokenness for wholeness. Peace, love and joy and kindness flow from the cross. That's the place where Jesus has made it all possible. That's the place of, from God's perspective, eternal reality. Eternal reality hinges on the cross. Everything that was and will be hinges on what Jesus did at the cross. And all my hope is that we would think about this and spend time grounding ourselves in this. That when I set off on this journey, when I started this trip, I had no idea where I would genuinely end up. But today I recognize that I need to get serious about the gospel. Because it's through the gospel that our journey takes on purpose, or it's being offended by the gospel that we turn back and go back to the old life. I don't know about you, but the old life, why would I want to go back there? Jesus has the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are, that Jesus is the Holy One of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for your word to us this afternoon. We ask, Lord, that you would take us deeper with you. We thank you that our journey began with satisfaction, maybe a prayer answered, maybe a sense of peace, maybe a sense of your goodness when we didn't deserve it. But we've been on a journey for some time now, Lord, whether it's a week or a month or a year. And Lord, for those that are feeling that sense of dissatisfaction, I pray that you bring them to the place of their offenses and the place of their distractions. And they begin to set aside those distractions and the easy satisfactions and the offenses in pursuit of the cross. That if the cross requires forgiveness, that they would be free with forgiveness. If the cross requires that they lay aside their distractions and sacrifice those in order to give more time to you, Make them willing to do that. If they are satisfied with things which provide momentary pleasure but no lasting joy, help them yield those things for the purpose of following you at the cross, Jesus. And Lord, we ask, Lord, that we would not stumble or trip at the bread, the communion, but that we would embrace the communion, embrace all that it means, embrace that it means that death, your death, has given us life. Embrace that it means that we can live a new life in you. And Lord, let us live unoffended, focused, satisfied lives in you, living for your glory. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen.